course it's important to celebrate inner beauty, to embrace ugly ducklings and elephant men and hunchbacks with hearts of gold, but in today's cutthroat professional arena, one must not ignore that appearances are important. If you want that big promotion, or that ravishing blonde, or that elite country club membership, you're going to have to learn to dress for success, because without the proper wardrobe, it's a long Sisyphean climb up the rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. With that in mind, we here at Advanced Techniques for Beginners have compiled the top three fashion tips for the progressive-minded businessman, which, if followed, ensure a lifetime of Chardonnay, Velvet, and Yachts, and, perhaps, even the cheating of death itself. Tip number one, set yourself on fire. A man on fire is a man on the go. He is screaming, he is flailing, he is the center of attention. Look at how the crowds part before him. Listen to how the sirens blare. Did you ever wish you could have that effect on people? Well, it's not hard. Just douse yourself with kerosene, light a match, and presto, you are on fire. Blase clothes beget a blase life. People ignore you. They brush you aside. They have trouble distinguishing you from shoeshine boys and wallpaper. But spice up your wardrobe with some searing white flames and you'll cause a couture commotion, drawing the attention of everyone from your boss to your co-workers to the local fire marshal. You are not a flash in the pan. You are a go-getting upper-tax bracket Molotov cocktail, instituting change, getting things done, setting off ideas and sprinkler systems. You are a man who believes fashion should be incendiary. You are a man who has set himself on fire. Tip number two. Drape yourself with the hides of your enemies. First impressions are everything. When interviewing for a job or meeting a new client, do you want your clothes to say, stomp on me, spit on me, for I am guileless and meek? Or do you want them to say, cross me and I will drink my daily Manhattan from your skull and fashion your skin into a sports jacket? If a picture is worth a thousand words, then the hide of a vanquished foe is worth at least two thousand. It says, among other things, that you are a man who gets things done, who always finishes the job, who never does anything halfway. Maybe your co-worker Bruce will let those clowns in shipping walk all over him, but you will wield your terrible swift sword and whittle their femur bones into cufflinks, and their parking spaces will run red with blood as an explicit reminder of the cost of inefficiency. Sure, Bruce has those nice Italian loafers, but you are wearing the hides of your enemies, and business is a war, not a Brooks Brothers catalog. Forget a tailor. Pay a visit to your local taxidermist. He will ensure that you and your hides are looking their absolute best. Tip number three. Smother yourself with barbecue sauce. 
The corporate world can be a drab, monotonous place. Why not liven it up with some delicious, tangy barbecue sauce? After you've jazzed up a boring cafeteria sandwich with your elbow or marinated a coworker's chicken with your chest, you'll quickly earn a reputation as a fun guy, a real character, and everyone will want you on their board or committee or golf junket. And as far as women go, who wouldn't salivate over a man dripping with bold KC masterpiece? Certainly, business requires a certain amount of decorum, but as they say, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, and you are no dull boy. You are a trailblazer, an innovator, someone who sees no reason why condiments can't be clothing. While the other office peons languish through the working week in their muted wools and tweeds, you perform your job with zest and pizzazz, and a smoky, slow-cooked flavor. And everywhere you go, there is the aroma of hickory brown sugar and success. Why wait for the weekend to enjoy yourself? Every day can be Saturday, when you are smothered in barbecue sauce. by the Scottish in the 15th century AD, golf is a game of steely resolve and precision. Although you may be competing in a tournament or informal skins game, your true opponent is your mercurial, imperfect mind, the slightest impulse of fear or self-doubt sending your dimpled white ball spiraling into the trees or an artificial lake and banishing your hopes for par to a deep, watery grave. Therefore, the line between triumph and despair is primarily mental rather than physical, and if you can program your neural circuitry to be doughty and dauntless, you will be zipping down the fairway to success in no time, impressing your business partners, reducing your handicap, and becoming the toast of your country club. But how, you ask, am I to overcome my flawed humanity, for I am not machine nor vegetable, but a man, feeble and born with original sin, grasping at three woods and nine irons in the darkness of my wretched soul. Well, that may be true, but if you follow our patented self-actualizing mental exercises, you will become an infallible, emotionless, big Bertha-wielding automaton, and the doors to better golf will be opened. Part 1. The Drive The Drive is golf's opening salvo, the aerial strike that will either pave the way for victory or sentence you to an ignominious death. The Drive should be aggressive, for the fairway is not for the weak, but at the same time, it must be controlled and casual, 
or you'll be bombarding the surrounding duplexes with your number three titleists. The real key here is the release of tension, a relaxed posture, a relaxed stance, a relaxed mind, serene and tranquil, free of unrest and anxiety. And, as any public speaker will tell you, the easiest way to achieve total inner peace is to imagine your companions naked. Picture this. You're standing at the tee on number four, 360 yards to the pin, and Don from accounting rolls up in a golf cart, naked as a jaybird. At his side is Clemens, also naked, and their rolls of fat jiggle gelatinously as they struggle to lift their clubs. What a spectacle. What a lark. And now, look at this. Marsha, that pretty intern from Florida State, emerges from a water hazard and skips down the fairway, dripping and glistening in the sun, her Pennsylvania-shaped pelvic birthmark bared for all to see. Her abs look great. Obviously, she works out. You relax your grip on your driver, and then notice your boss on the previous green. His phallus is even smaller than you expected. He's joined by Jimmy, and Thompson, and Billy the Swede, and soon all of accounting is gathered at number four, naked as the day they were born. And then, who's this? Grandpa. Your beloved grandpa, returned from the grave, emerging slowly from a sand trap. He approaches you, disrobed and glowing, and your eyes swell with tears as he embraces you and says, it's good to be back, with characteristic folksy charm. Grandson, he says, with a gleam in his eye, I have so much to tell you, so much wisdom to impart. I have danced with death and learned a great many things, but the greatest of them all is this. As long as you hold your titanium driver without jealousy or malice, without hatred or lust or scorn, there will appear on the fairway a great white light, a brilliant luminous beacon, and you have only to swing your club, gracefully and true, to commune with the white light and finally understand the inherent beauty that resides in all things, that governs the essence of our lives, that lends substance and meaning to the very fabric of existence. And you say, yes, I see the light, and your naked co-workers watch with amazement as you square your shoulders, shift your weight in the backswing, and send your golf ball careening to the infinite sky commune at last with the heavens. Part 2. The Approach Shot The approach shot is arguably the most difficult shot in golf. It involves so many variables in distance and wind and strategy and lie that even the most veteran golfer can grasp his pitching wedge and suffer a nervous breakdown, showering his caddy with invectives and stuffing his face with sod. The crucial thing, then, whether striking from sand, the fairway, or deep rough, 
is to swing with confidence, to erase any inklings of worry or doubt, to settle for nothing but the green. This can be achieved with little effort by performing the following exercise. Imagine you are at a Starbucks. While ordering an iced caramel macchiato, you notice a man choking on a gourmet muffin, his face turning blue and his arms flailing at a Bob Dylan promotional display, and you swiftly and effortlessly perform the Heimlich, delivering a series of quick, vigorous thrusts until the muffin sails gracefully from his throat. The patrons whistle and applaud, and the barista says your iced caramel macchiato is on the house, but you insist on paying and drop your change in the tip jar, and the teenage employees swoon with admiration, beg you to father their children, and pressure the Roman Catholic Church to canonize you as a living saint. You leave Starbucks and buy the New Yorker from a periodical stand, and you notice that, once again, you're People Magazine's sexiest man alive. Two rows down, you're also Time's Man of the Year, due to your role in procuring the recent Israeli-Palestinian peace accord, and below that, you're posing with peonies on better homes and gardens. All in all, it's been a good year. You're the first person in history to win a MacArthur Genius Grant while serving as the world's sexiest man alive, but you try to remain humble. A crowd of Japanese tourists spots you, and you gamely pose for pictures. Later in the day, you return home to make love to Salma Hayek, somehow utilizing every sex tip ever published in L Glamour and Cosmopolitan, and the two of you reach such unprecedented heights of pleasure that a wall-mounted orgasm converter of your own design generates enough electricity to power Greater Miami-Dade for a year. You spoon, cuddle, trade terms of endearment, and then it's off to Washington, where the president's advisors shake your hand and lob you various global crises. They give you AIDS, and you say, case closed. They give you genocide, and you say, piece of cake. After seven hours, including meals and coffee breaks, you've eliminated hunger, balanced the national budget, and brought democracy to Cuba, China, and North Korea, while simultaneously writing a concerto for marimba and orchestra, and finishing the New York Times crossword puzzle. You're about to leave and return to Selma Hayek to help Boca Raton with some power outages when the Secretary of Defense says, there's just this one more thing. You see, we could really use a man of your talents and stature to hit a sand wedge onto the green at number nine, and ideally, we'd like the ball to land within roughly seven to ten feet from the pin. Do you think you could do that? And you fly to the course on Air Force One, stroll confidently up to the sand trap, select your club, and swing. Part 3. The Putt When you get right down to it, golfers live or die by their short game. Like D-Day in Stalingrad, 
The microcosmic battlefield of the golf green separates the conquerors from the conquered, deciding who will be carving up Berlin at Yalta and who will be hanging in Nuremberg for war crimes. Of course, skill is important, reading topography, calculating velocity, and knowing your own strength. But at the end of the day, what it all boils down to is motivation. You have to want that hole, need that hole, desire that hole so badly you would quit your job, leave your family, and wander the interstate highway system of the American Southwest on Camelback, if only for a taste of that sweet, honey-flavored hole. Unfortunately, as any golf pro can attest, it's hard to stay motivated. You've got bills, you've got a mortgage, you've got a million things to worry about besides sinking a 17-foot putt. However, if you can create a vivid motivational scenario every time you set foot on the green, a hypothetical situation that really stokes your competitive fire, your million worries dissolve into the ether, and it will be just you and the whole, mano a mano, man's primordial battle. The following is an example of such a scenario. New York. Date unspecified. Terrorist bombs have decimated Times Square. On television screens across America, dazed interviewees scream and garble gibberish, and cameramen execute slow, poignant panning shots. What do they want from us? shrieks a blood-drenched, disoriented Wall Street broker. Why do they hate our freedom? The New York subway system is on lockdown. JFK and LaGuardia have canceled all flights. In supermarkets across the country, people burst into tears in the checkout lane and hug the teenage baggers, and everyone from firefighters to sportscasters to prostitutes wear special patches to commemorate the thousands of dead. As far away as Des Moines, Iowa, there is increased security and mass hysteria. Stampede-related injuries are up 700%. The president is speechless. He appears on television and just stares at the camera for 20 minutes, silent and blinking, followed by commercials and more footage of the attacks. The House and Senate convene for an extraordinary session of Congress, and after two days of deliberation, announce that all hope is lost, which is shakily signed by the President and passed into law. A shell-shocked nation looks for someone to turn to, but all they see is chaos and rubble. You step onto the green at hole 11. It's a 30-foot putt for birdie. You analyze the slope, stick your finger to the wind, and calmly flick your putter, sending your ball darting hopefully on its long uphill path. Broadcast everywhere from NBC to Al Jazeera to Kazakh state television, the putt is watched by the entire globe, traffic grinding to a halt in Tokyo, Mumbai, Kuala Lumpur, and people clutch at their hearts and pray in every language known to man as the ball slowly rolls across the green 
like a dimpled messiah. And when the ball gently falls into the hole, it is so powerful, so beautiful, so undeniable, that jihadists and leftists and insurgents and guerrillas across the world set down their guns and improvised explosive devices and march to the sea, holding hands and singing Negro spirituals, and the earth awakens to a new age of peace and prosperity as you bend down, retrieve your ball, and casually walk to the next hole. particularly professional. They often ramble about their mortgage payments, or wonder out loud how the equipment works, or play streams of inadvertent profanity. But their hearts are in the right place, and so I allow them to accompany me on my sojourns through the city. I work as a pizza delivery man, administering Rudy's famous octagonal pies to the masses, therefore spend most of my waking life carbound with the voices of WMZL. After four years on the job, I can recognize the hosts instantly. Country Stew, with his husky baritone, Dr. Jazz, who can't pronounce the letter R, Kitty, from Electric Energy, who's probably 40, but sounds vaguely like Shirley Temple. I've never met these people, have no idea what they look like. But when I start my Honda Civic and Dr. Jazz bursts forth from my speakers, mumbling the personnel list of a big band record, it's like I'm being greeted by an intimate friend, an old pal from the schoolyard who knows all my childhood secrets. At the end of the day, after hours with the voices of the hosts, I almost forget that I'm essentially alone in the world, smelling of pepperoni and friendless. Through my work, I meet lots of people in all parts of the city, but only for about 10 seconds at a time. If my customers saw me at a deli or a coffee shop, I doubt they'd approach me and say, hey, didn't you deliver us that delicious octagonal meat lovers last month? And then invite me to join them for frappuccinos. The thing is, I have a photographic memory for faces, so I notice customers all the time. Two extra-large Canadian bacons at the supermarket, half supreme, half pineapple at Blockbuster, 
the works with no onions, tying her dog to a parking meter. Of course, I never talk to them. It would be awkward, and they might think I'm a stalker, but it does give me some tinge of satisfaction to know so many people in the faceless rush of the city. Like with a radio host, say, one-way acquaintance, a bond as flimsy as uncooked pizza dough, but weighed down by information age loneliness, a guy like me takes what he can get, and if the pickings are slim, then so be it. Technically, I'm not a complete orphan to the world. I live with my parents in a duplex, but in terms of a healthy social life, uncomfortable family dinners at Applebee's just don't cut it. My dad's line of work is pest control, and after 30 years of chemicals and murder, he seems ready to fumigate us at any moment, eradicating his familial responsibilities like termites. Sometimes after work, I hit the bars, hurl myself into a world of flashing neon and feigned camaraderie, but no one has anything interesting to say, and the music is always terrible. My only true comfort comes with a car ride home, when I can turn on WMZL and listen to the 1930s banjo pickers of Country Stew's Jamboree of Misfortune, singing about lives far, far worse than my own. As Rudy's famous octagonal pies are desired by every race, creed, and social class, I've driven my Honda Civic through every slum and subdivision in town. There are certain addresses we won't deliver to, mostly known crack houses, but we proudly serve the Boning Crystal District and other areas of ill repute. One thing I've noticed is that WMZL's broadcasts often make the poor parts of town seem unreal. The cumbia of the tropical show, or reggae of Radio Trenchtown, turning the world outside my windshield into a gritty documentary film, instead of the neglected heart of an American city. Equally surreal are my trips to the suburbs, when beautiful gated homes and tennis courts are juxtaposed with live news feeds from Darfur and Basra. When WMZL airs BBC radio broadcasts and British correspondents describe third world squalor and devastation with perfect diction, I can drive through Boning Gristle and see similar scenes of squalor and devastation, or I can wind through Pheasant Bluff and think, thank God I'm an American as the stars and bars greet me from the bumpers of SUVs. It's a diverse country we live in, and WMZL is a diverse radio station, and I'm thankful for both as I idle somnolently through my bland, monotonous existence. Now, understandably, every now and then a customer asks me, why is Rudy's Pizza octagonal? The story as I understand it, goes like this. Back in the 80s, Rudy was an unsuccessful restaurant entrepreneur in Louisiana. His sole remaining property was a rundown pizzeria in a town called Homa, and his managers were so incompetent they once ran out of cooking oil and returned from an emergency run to the gas station with armfuls of Quaker State. In addition, Rudy's wife was fooling around with a rival entrepreneur named Crazy Eddie, 
who was insane about brand name furniture, and Rudy's daughter was an aspiring porn actress named Betty the Beaver Cleaver. Rudy tried to cope as best he could, tried to valiantly soldier on, but after enduring a string of Crazy Eddie commercials on the radio and seeing Leave It to the Beaver in the adult section of a video store, he visited his failing restaurant, ordered a thin crust Italian sausage, and drove home to blow his own brains out. Except when Rudy got home, local vandals had piled a bunch of patio furniture on his roof and planted a stolen stop sign in the middle of his front lawn. His first thought was, ah, screw it, I'll be dead in a few minutes anyway, but then he took a second look at that stop sign, reflecting the light from a flickering street lamp like the halo of a Botticelli angel, and Eureka, octagonal pizza, was born. Of course, we tell the customers none of this for obvious discretionary reasons. Instead, we merely shrug our shoulders and say, eight sides means more delicious pie. As I said, I've been delivering octagonal pizza for four years and running, so by this point, I have WMZL's schedule committed fully to memory. Mondays from 2 to 5 p.m., it's The Yids Are Alright, featuring both old-time and contemporary klezmer. Tuesdays at 8, it's The Brothers Meringue, turning Rush Hour into a Dominican two-step. And Wednesdays at noon, it's The Axis of Evil Lunch Hour, with the popular Terrorist, Not a Terrorist call-in segment. Probably my favorite show, however, is Advanced Techniques for Beginners, Friday at 4 p.m., wherein a guy with a disaffected monotone dispenses advice on topics he knows almost nothing about. His subject matter runs the gamut from salt production to bobsledding to childcare, but at no point are his recommendations the slightest bit useful as he urges bobsledders to mate with losers and parents to raise their children like tomatoes. It's never clear whether the guy is a satirist or a schizophrenic, but the ambiguity between humor and insanity is what gives Advanced Techniques for Beginners its special kick, and I've been a devoted fan since the first episode, when he lectured on the importance of showering and breast milk. Occasionally, my parents and I will go on vacation, and the moment when WMZL's signal fades permanently to static is the saddest part of the trip. Out on the interstate, and in the cities of our relatives, there's nothing like WMZL. Every song sounds the same, every host is a robot, every commercial eats away at the very marrow of my bones. I wonder sometimes how people put up with this trash. I guess everyone has a CD player now, but what about people like me? in need of a friend to accompany them on their lonely ride through the city. Every April, WMZL does a pledge drive, and I want to give them my life savings, my flesh, my soul, but I'm too nervous to call in and instead light votive candles and pray they meet their necessary quota. Maybe one day, WMZL will cease to exist, 
maybe it too will be swallowed by the thousand-headed monster that growls the same in Wichita as in Dubuque as in Albuquerque. When I deliver pizzas through this great diverse U.S. of A, I see this encroaching sameness, the friendly neighborhood Starbucks, the friendly neighborhood McDonald's, and sure, people complain about it, but just as many find it comforting. What worries me, though, is if the sameness devours everything, who will be friends with the friendless, the loners, and the unloved? People like me, searching for a voice. Will the sameness be our friend? Will it guide us on our path? Or will we just be alone, driving with the homogenous sound, handing out octagons to strangers? For now, I ignore the future and keep on listening. Today's episode of Advanced Techniques for Beginners is titled How to Dress for Success, and it promises to be a good one.